Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Strike Talk. The first recorded labor strike in history occurred in ancient Egypt in 1156 BC. We know this because it was documented on papyrus by writers. Egyptians cared greatly about the afterlife. Their big building projects were necropolises, future burial chambers for the pharaoh. Such a tomb was being built by laborers and artisans in the 29th year of the reign of Ramses III when a problem arose. The pay those laborers received was rations, and the rations suddenly stopped coming. They were days late, then weeks late. The laborers began to starve. They sent a representative to complain to local government authorities, and the response was an ancient Egyptian version of tough shit. As anyone who's seen the Ten Commandments can tell you, Ramses had quite an army and didn't mind using it to quash dissent. The next month, the rations arrived four weeks late. None of the laborers could understand the indifference of their superiors to all their suffering. How can you let your workforce starve? When the crisis hit its seventh month, the workers finally hit their breaking point. They put down their tools and walked off the job. No one had ever done this before, ever. And their supervisors had no idea where they'd gone or what to do. The laborers took to the streets yelling, we are hungry and blocked access to the Valley of Kings, barring citizens from bringing sacred food and drink to the dead. The workers marched to the vizier or mayor. They knew there might be reprisals from Pharaoh's army, but they had no other choice. Happily, there was no Taylor Sheridan among them to publicly announce, listen, these guys don't speak for me. I'm very happy with the ration situation the way that it is. Perhaps that solidarity was enough to convince the vizier that starving such a valuable workforce was a bad idea. Or maybe he saw a deeper truth, that the strike was actually his, not theirs, that his policies had forced it to happen. So he capitulated, agreeing to incur the cost of hiring more workers to solve his supply chain problems and get the laborers the rations they deserved. 700 years later, the Roman Empire saw the same dynamic. Common laborers and builders, plebeians, were hit with a law that burdened them with unpayable debt by the ruling patrician class. In response, the plebeians didn't just walk off the job, they walked out of the city. It was called a secessio plebis, which is Latin for good fucking luck selling ad slots at the upfront. There was no middle class in Rome. The plebeians vastly outnumbered the patricians, so the secessions left an empty city. The workers demanded a repeal of the debt law, the resignations of key figures, and term limits on Senate seats. Again, this was the Roman fucking empire that they were challenging, not a bunch of tech execs, yet nobody went FICOR. And you know who blinked first? The Roman empire. Again, the patricians saw a deeper truth. The strike had been theirs. 
they made it inevitable. Rome agreed to the demands. Workers have so much power when they stick together. The fifth and last secessio plebis took place in 287 BC. Again, the plebeians emptied the city, bringing life there to a stop, forcing the patricians to the table. Negotiations, which oddly took place at the Sherman Oaks Galleria, resulted in the Hortensian Law, which established that plebeians and patricians had equal political rights. It also created a new house of government, the Plebeian Assembly, allowing these common laborers to elect their own representatives, pass their own laws, and try their own judicial cases. Laborers taking on Pharaoh and then the Roman Empire. Do you know what we would have called those laborers today? Teamsters. The International Brotherhood of Teamsters was founded in 1903. Its members were carriage drivers of horse-drawn teams, hence the name. In 1900, the average teamster worked 12 to 18 hours for $2, seven days per week. If merchandise that they were hauling got damaged, they had to pay for it. It was untenable, yet no labor laws existed to protect them. The IBT's first strike was a long and bloody failure. 100 days, 21 lives lost, as strike breakers and scabs hired by Montgomery Ward in Chicago carried the day. But the Teamsters regrouped, electing a new president named Dan Tobin, who organized aggressively. Tobin brought in gravel haulers, beer wagon drivers, milk wagon drivers, and he organized drivers of this new thing called trucks. Teamsters organized women and established the credo, Teamsters know no color line. The Teamsters history has not been spotless, but the union has evolved. Today, it represents 1.4 million working members and 500,000 retirees, as well as thousands of men and women who work every day in Hollywood. Drivers, mechanics, locations teams, casting directors, these people comprise the Teamsters Motion Picture and Theatrical Trade Division, Local 399. Its leader is someone those first Teamsters in 1903 might not have seen coming, but probably should have. Her name is Lindsay Doherty. Lindsay is Local 399's first female leader, also its youngest. She's been an outspoken champion of the Guild and this strike since before it began. That's because she knows, as the companies know, that this writer's strike is not really a writer's strike at all. It was inflicted upon the entire industry by the companies for whom we all toil, the ones so determined to shrink the cost of human labor in the name of optimization. Companies who believe that writers, actors, directors, and yes, truck drivers are all replaceable, either by AI or by workers desperate enough to accept the piecemeal pay scale of a gig economy. Also because Lindsay was in the room at the, as the WGA negotiations began, she saw that the companies were not actually negotiating at all, that their entire strategy was to force a walkout and then bring in the DGA to make the same kind of deal they always do. Which means this strike, like so many strikes before it, is not the product of our union or any union. It belongs now and forever to the same pharaohs who wanted temples built but wouldn't give enough rations to the laborers who were building them, and then seemed mystified when those laborers demanded more. It is their strike, their doing, in every way possible, and if they want to end it, they know where to find us. We're right outside their palace gates every day, wanting simply to start building again. We've been here since 1200 BC. Lindsay, welcome to Strike Talk. I have a million questions for you, but first I just want to say thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. I oh, love gosh. this podcast. <laughs> thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about your personal history? I mean, obviously it's a very big deal to be 399's first female leader and its youngest. How did you get there? Um, well, my father is a teamster and I was born and raised in Detroit. So it was a very union environment. Um, I put, I was able to go to college because of being part of the middle class because my father worked for a union, was in a union. 
Um, it was still, you know, barely middle class. Um, but because of that upbringing, I realized, you know, I learned and knew exactly what it was and how much it meant to people to, to just have a sustainable living wage. And so uh, a little bit of motion picture has been in Detroit. It's usually establishing shots or exteriors. So I was around my first film set when I was 12. And then I was an extra a few times. And then um, in 2004, I worked on my first feature film, which was The Island, directed by Michael Bay. And then ever since then, I knew I wanted to work in the industry and knew that I wanted to be a Teamster. And the only way to make that possible was to move to Hollywood. And I did that in 2006 and started working in Hollywood on in motion pictures and then joined Local 399 in 2008. And I worked as a rank and file member as a transportation dispatcher. But it, it's always been a passion of mine, the labor movement. It's always something I wanted to do. I didn't want to continue to work in the industry. I wanted to work for the union. So um, I ran in a very contentious election with Steve Dan, who was the previous principal officer before me. And we won the election in 2014. He won as a principal officer and then brought me on as a business agent. And then he retired last year and we had another election last year and I went uncontested and had a white ballot. And then here we are. Can you tell me what percentage of the Teamsters in 399 are female? It's a little over 20%. We have a long way to go. Um, not just specific to 399, but a lot of labor unions. But yeah, it's been a priority. And we've put, we just have another female on our executive board, which is the first time we've had two in our history. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Bad but true. Um, but yeah, for sure, we're going to continue that. Obviously, I, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is extremely important to me and to our organization as well. So most mm -hmm. definitely. You have been so outspoken and so supportive of the Guild in this effort at real personal cost to yourself and at cost to your members. Why is the Guild's effort here important to you? Why does it matter and why do you think it impacts the people you're responsible for? Well, initially, you know, when about a year ago, when I first took over the local union, I obviously, as the principal officer, I was dealing with the employers in a different way, being the representative for 399. And then additionally to that, I became the director of the motion picture and theatrical trade division for the international for the Teamsters. And back then I was hearing from the employers that, um, you know, the writers are going to strike next year because they always do as if they're unreasonable and that's what they're going to do because it's expected. They do it every 10 years. I've heard every single reason or excuse you could, you could imagine that obviously was not based on any fact. Um, and then the last, uh, the beginning of the year, I made um, contact with uh, WGA negotiators to, first of all, introduce myself, but you know, also I wanted to see what was happening um, for them and in terms of preparation for negotiations and what they saw coming. 
but it became very apparent that, you know, their fight was righteous, obviously. And um, when the time came for bargaining and when I, they invited me to Alan Stutzman, the chief negotiator, invited me to be there, um, I saw the first day it was a different tone, um, different sentiment coming from the employers as if they were just going through the motions just to do it. And that then I realized that this strike was not about the, you know, necessarily the writers. It was about all of us because the employers did plan this. Like they had been planning to put the writers out on strike, but essentially they were planning to go on strike, the AMPTP. This is their strike, like you said. And, you know, the reason to even speak to any of the other unions and guilds too, number one is if anyone goes on strike, it impacts every single worker and it impacts every member of mine as well. And not just in Los Angeles, but in New York and nationwide. So um, that is where it's like, it, 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 historically, we have, to, we have to learn from our mistakes. And our mistakes as labor organizations within this industry is not collectively working together for the greater good for all workers in this industry. And it, what happened in 2007, 2008, I was actually working at Paramount on Star Trek, and I saw exactly what happened then, which there were a lot of workers crossing picket lines and zero solidarity. Um, I think there was some support from the Teamsters, but for me, being from Detroit, being a second generation Teamster, that is like, it is sacrilegious to cross a picket line. You support one another, you support the other unions that you have to work side by side with. And so having that base it was, it, it's really that simple um, for all Teamsters to understand. And, and, and really it is, I think a little bit more trying in our industry because historically we haven't, we've been divided and there hasn't been that labor solidarity in our industry like you see in other industries. Mm -hmm. So obviously I had to make a decision and that decision was we were going to support the unions no matter what and make it very clear to the employers that that is what the Teamsters were going to do. And that was with the support of our members and the support of our international, including our general executive board and our president. As you said, we have 1.3 million Teamsters, and that is, um, that is the support that we are willing to give for the, the writers, because this does impact every single worker in the industry. And your contract comes up, is it next June? Our contract expires July 31st, 2024, and that's the black book agreement we have, which that's what we call it. It covers the drivers, mechanics, animal trainers, wranglers, dispatchers. That's the biggest contract we have. It's over 3,000 of our members, and we also have the other Hollywood Basic Crafts. Um, I'm the chairperson of that, which includes IBW, Local 40. You have the laborers, you have plasters, plumbers. Um, and then IATSE's agreement also expires on the same date. So you obviously see in this an omen for what might be coming for you guys when you sit down next summer to negotiate your deal. I mean, I, I, my feeling has always been from the beginning of this that the Writers Guild strike, which we should now, I guess, call the AMPTP strike. Exactly. That it was the front line in a much larger struggle that had to do with the corporatization of America and labor in America and, and the dignity of work and the worth of the individual. 
So it's not so much an issue of do do uh, specific pieces of our contract pattern to the Teamsters contract. It's what are the corporations that run Hollywood trying to do to all of us? That's the thing that you are bumping up against. Is that right? Yeah, most definitely. And I, f- I felt that when we bargained our contract um, last time around, which w- we had to extend. Um, and knowing what I know now, I w- would not extend. And we're, we don't plan on extending any contracts of ours in the future. Uh, but that was coming off of COVID and realizing like we had our members that worked throughout COVID, mind you, because we they became known as, you know, essential workers because the studios fought for that. So our members started working, you know, masking, testing, all that just a few months after COVID hit. So we were, we were shut down for three months at the most for some, the majority of productions. And then, and then inflation started increasing and, and then seeing what we're up against, it's like, no, you have to get three, three and 3%. That's what we give everybody else. And realizing like, it it was like banging your head up against a wall for like the, this is, that was my third contract cycle with AMPTP and seeing that they truly don't care about their workers at all. They just went to work and in spite of like, you know, the safety of contracting COVID-19. Um, and so we, I've already felt this coming. Like I knew that we had to prepare. We, and so we've been doing that in the last year. Um, but I feel like not even just the industry, it's most workers in America right now, as you can see what's happening in the country. Um, with all of the labor strikes that we see, um, with all the threats of strikes and just workers coming together to organize. Um, when you when you have companies like Amazon um, out there, it, it's inevitable that people are going to stand up for themselves. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's part of this as well. I think people are tired of getting the same, we call, we call it the buck, buck, buck. It's the 3%, 3%, 3%. Like, it's just the same thing over and over again when obviously their profit margins are much greater than they have been historically. And what you said earlier about Teamsters working 16 to 18 hours a day, I mean, that is how the majority of our members make a living. And I call it blood money, but they are on set sometimes for up to 20 hours, sometimes 24. I mean, that is how your average driver makes a living, a good living, is through overtime in Hollywood. And that is, I think, you know, what you saw with IATSE a couple of years ago, too, with their strike authorization vote that they did, that was the underlying issue for their members was, like, you know, being compensated more for that and then not working as many hours. So you're absolutely seeing I think, you know, a a little bit of that in our industry. And then with autonomous vehicles, I mean, the Teamsters have been very aware of this nationwide. Um, We have a bill that's going through um, the state of California right now. It's called AB 316, and that's requiring a human safety operator, a.k.a. a driver, for a vehicle that's over 10,000 pounds, which would require traditionally a Class A driver's license. And so, um, you know, that, and and the problem is, is big tech again is pushing this. And then you have these politicians that are in love with these tech companies as well. So it's a fight on every front. 
um, not just with the companies, but with the politicians that support these companies that are, you know, horrible employers to begin with, like Amazon. Um, yeah, that's, that's a real concern. And then I think the last thing I want to say about that is that, you know, with our industry, this idea of corporate greed, you know, attacking all of us and threatening our jobs, that's something that I think our members in and our industry kind of don't pay attention to because it's like the love for working in the motion picture industry. And it's, it's kind of like Stockholm syndrome a little bit where they're in love with their captor because they, they want to go to work. They love their job and they'll do whatever it takes, but it's like, at what cost are you going to continue to do that job? The idea of AI driving a a 10,000 pound truck, that could kill somebody. Uh, that, that I find extremely alarming. And even the fact that you had to come up with the name human safety operator um, is kind of upsetting. But take me now inside Local 399. The Writers Guild goes on strike. What is the message that you communicate to your members about that strike? And what is it that you're telling them to do? If, for example, they're supposed to be delivering something to an on-set location and that location is being picketed, what do you tell them to do? Well, that's why initially when this all started, I had to be very vocal and come out swinging, so to speak, because I wanted to be very clear Uh, to our members that Teamsters don't cross picket lines. And that is something that the Teamsters have held dear for many, many years, decades, because of our contract language that we have, uh, picket line language that um, basically the the employer can't discipline or retaliate against a member or Teamster or worker if they refuse to cross a picket line. Um, so that is, that is one of the messages to our members, but also that we have to support the working people in this industry and we can't let any of these employers break a union because that is the same thing they would do to us a year from now. They would do it to anybody because they truly have no feeling about it. They are all about profits over people and, and that is going to be difficult. And it is difficult and it's it's going to be continue. It's going to continue to be difficult until this is over and people are still going to be impacted even when we start going back to work because there's financial losses, things like that. And I think, you know, we still have to continue with that message because it, it really is simple that we all are in this together and we have to continue to move in that direction in the future, because we'll see this again if the unions are not collectively supporting each other and are together. Because as you see, the AMPTP, the studios and the tech companies, they're not they're not together in the sense that you know they're competitors, like you've said in other of episodes that you've had. But it's they they really are together in this of like trying to to punish the writers and punish this industry. To me, a multi-employer unit in this in this degree with the big tech companies as well as the, the biggest media companies out there, it, it's not making any sense for any of us. I don't find it useful any longer. I think it's, I've said it before, like they should be extinct, not us. They should be <laughs> as a, the AMPTP. I know when I'm picketing at Fox, 
every truck driver that drives by gives us a big honk consistently. Are you getting any pushback from your members? Are you getting any resentment from your members? Yeah, I mean, we we hear about it, um, but then we also hear about the support, and that's why we just have to continue to educate and communicate and support our members. Um, because part of this too is you have a generation of workers that have they really don't know how to be in a union or be a union member yet they're in a union and they've never really lived through a strike. So, um, and then you have, you know, we have members that think that we should be more sympathetic to the employers. Um, so obviously really? that's more education that we have to do. Yeah, yeah. Because I think when, when we're talking about, and I've heard you say this before, it's not, the producers. It's the actual people making the decisions for these multi-billion dollar, multi-trillion dollar companies. These are the people that make millions and millions of dollars a year. It isn't the producer that you know that you work side by side with. Yeah. It's the companies. I love my producers and producers have saved me on many an occasion. Um, I learned from all of them and they've supported me a million different times. No, this is not the producers. This is the companies. Your membership and the guild's membership have a common interest in growing the Hollywood labor movement in a big picture sense. How do we do that? And traditionally, what's the relationship like between IATSE and the Teamsters? Well, that's... I mean, this is the same I could say for other relationships that we've, you know, we have with other unions. It's just a lack of communication. Um, mm -hmm. And the pre, and there, we hear a lot about, you know, from our members too, like this happened in, in 1988. Like this is what writers did this or IATSE did this. And it's like, I don't know who those people are that were in, in leadership roles back then. I don't even, but they're gone and they're not here today. And who is here today? You know, I have a great partnership and working relationship uh, with IATSE International, uh, Mike Miller, Vanessa Holgrew, Matt Loeb. And, um, and we, we, you know, we work side by side together. You know, our members do it's where, you know, they're, our members are, driving alongside their members or driving with their members. So that's, that's something that he and I have um, bonded most recently and have, you know, we encourage one another and I, we are growing that relationship because we have to, mm -hmm. um, because it's, you know, the, again, we work side by side with them, but historically it hasn't been this strong, like it, what you're seeing, even with the other unions and guilds, like historically we have not had <laughs> these many talks. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about UPS. You are in the process of negotiating that contract too. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that the biggest private sector contract in America? Do I have that right? Yeah. So our general president alongside our, his name is Sean O'Brien. He's the chief negotiator um, for the Teamsters uh, for this agreement. And then there's our, also our general secretary treasurer, Fred Zuckerman, alongside a committee of rank and file members, as well as uh, other union leaders and negotiators throughout the country. Um, but that, it, that covers 340,000 Teamsters Ooh. across the country. So those are your package car drivers. There's the ones that 
are loading the trucks. Um, and so we've had this contract with UPS for decades. Uh, but yeah, the contract expires July 31st uh, in less than a month. And uh, right now that's where I'm at in DC right now to witness and observe these negotiations, which is like you said, it's the largest private sector contract out there. And I'm assuming you're seeing the same sort of push pull in that negotiation that you would see in negotiations out here. Yeah. I mean, I think though, you know, we can, I think as negotiators, you can say one thing, but you better back it up with your membership's support. And that's most definitely what we're seeing here. Um, UPS Teamsters were on the front line of COVID. You know, they they didn't have the same um, luxuries that motion picture drivers had where they got paid to get tested or they got tested and they got masks and things like that. So this is an employer that has reaped uh, millions and millions of profits. Um, and so they, you know, the members are pretty upset about their conditions. And was there a higher instance of illness among your members uh, who had exposed themselves to that? Yeah. So with UPS, there's no telling because they weren't testing. So the the numbers, we don't know those numbers. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Are you tracking the SAG negotiations? Do they impact uh, the Teamsters as well? Yes. Um, I have been speaking to the SAG um, negotiators, just checking in, seeing how we can support um, and prepare for possibly an, another strike in the midst of the writer's strike. Um, but yeah, we we are, you know, whatever we can do to support them, we're going to do. And the, and the same with us. But I, I would say there are productions still filming right now. And they're filming because there's crews working in certain areas, whether it's the United States, Canada, or other countries. But if there were a SAG strike, that would entirely, I think, shut more of these productions down, which would impact the studios and the companies. I don't think the AMPTP ever expected the strike to go, the writer's strike to go this way. And I don't think they planned for it. I think they were looking at the 0708 model or what happened then. So in other words, let the writers walk, bring in the DGA, the DGA makes a, a pretty tame deal, and then that ends the writer's strike. That was the old playbook. Yes, which, when's the last time SAG struck? 2000? With the commercial companies? Mm -hmm. It's been a while since they struck uh, the AMPTP. Yes, it has. And one thing I can tell you is um, they're in a negotiation, right? SAG is in a negotiation right now, separate from the AAPTP negotiation. They're in a negotiation for their video game division with companies like EA Sports, and they cannot reach an agreement. And the reason they can't reach an agreement is because the video game companies won't give up AI, which would, of course, be a disaster for the artists at SAG, um, but seems like maybe a harbinger uh, of what's coming for the rest of us. <clears throat> it, you can always tell in a negotiation uh, the thing that the companies cared about most because it's the thing they didn't give up. Uh, and that may be the line that they are drawing. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, they have to fight for their members. This is the future of their jobs. So I don't know what the studios or these companies expect. Um, that's, it's just we're not going to tolerate it. Somewhere out there is a, a, a teamster, a truck driver, perhaps a future teamster, 
uh, listening to this on his or her route. What do you want to say to them about what's happening now, what's happened in the past, what you see coming and why it all matters? Well, first I'll say fighting is never easy, but it is always necessary when you're dealing with employers that are not treating workers fairly. They're not compensating them for the work that they're doing and increasingly um, disparage those workers, whether it's through wages, benefits. Um, But I think it's important to know that each union's fight is important for the entire labor movement of this motion picture industry that we all love. And we have to realize it that we're no different than an Amazon worker or any other worker seeking fairness and justice from their employers and to be compensated for the work that we're, that they're doing. And the work that the motion picture industry workers do is extremely unique. And this industry is extremely lucrative for these companies that are making billions and billions of dollars um, every year off the backs of our members, off the backs of every worker in this industry and every single person deserves a fair shot at a life that they can have for their families, for themselves, to put their kids through college. And we're living in a time now where that's not made possible. Our industry has always had upper middle class workers, and we are no longer seeing that. However, these companies are increasingly making more profits than ever before, and it's not going to ever be acceptable and we have to continue to fight. And once we win the fight, because I'm confident that we will, um, we will prevail and get the wages that our members and everybody deserves in this industry. But we have to stay resilient and we have to fight together and we have to support one another. And it's really that simple. Um, however hard it may be to fight, we have to continue to do that because it is our future in this industry not just for writers, but for directors, for actors, for drivers, casting directors, every single person that loves this industry needs to be fairly compensated for the work that they love to do. At the end of July of next year, uh, you guys will be walking in for your negotiations. And I just want to tell you that this guild and this writer in particular will be with you when that happens. Um, and, and we will never forget the support um, that you've shown us. It's been moving. And I deeply, deeply appreciate it. I know my entire guild does. I don't have a truck, so I can't toot my horn uh, for all of the Teamsters, but emotionally I am. Thank you so much for being with us. So here's the takeaway for me. Um, Those strikes worked in Egypt and Rome because all the workers bought in. Had the stone cutters struck and the artisans kept working, the strikes would have failed. There isn't a Teamster in this business whose life is going to be changed by the Writers Guild winning or losing on many rooms. And yet, Lindsay is urging them all to support us because she knows that our fight is their fight, that companies find their decency only when they are forced to do so, and that a secessio plebis is the only way her drivers can be spared untenable losses on the issues that can change their lives, AI, minimums, and the nonstop assault of corporate greed on the American worker. For them and for us, history is clear. We fight together or we starve alone. I want to thank uh, Lindsay once again. I want to thank my magnificent producer, Jade Collins. 
Please join us next week when our guests will be Rudolph Valentino and Butterfly McQueen. This is Stripe Talk. Never-